Greetings, everyone. It is now time for Marked Safe. Tales of your very favorite and most beloved disasters. On Mark Safe, we discuss events and details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen responsibly and stay safe. And now, here with your hosts, Brianne and Melanie, this is Mark Safe. Our mascot. Our mascot is about to be one. It's so crazy to me. It really is. Seems like yesterday. Maybe it, not to you, since you've been raising a whole ass baby ever since. Oh, squonk. Little oh, baby squonk. squonk. You called him Casey the other day on the phone, and I was like, who the fuck are you talking about? It threw me off so completely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited that I can move past this formula shortage. Oh, this- gosh. And uh, focus on the tampon shortage. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm encountering that one right now, let's just say. <laughs> really feels like uh, women are being bullied lately. <laughs> a, a bit. Yeah, maybe a bit. Oh, what's next? It's going to be chocolate. It's going to be chocolate. I just know it. It's got to be. No one's going to be marked safe from that. <laughs> oh, what are you doing for the baby's birthday? Um, I don't. I don't. No, you know, he's number five, so we just don't plan shit. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, I mean, do you do anything for first birthdays? We do a cake smash. We had family photos taken. I got the proofs back for that. And they did some special, or she did some special photos of just him. And they are adorable. There's even a crying one. (laughs) Okay, why do I feel like you've only sent me the proofs of one? I need more. I will send them to you. I will send them. We have to pick them out. She is actually, there's a delay on getting the the prints because she had a hysterectomy. And I was like, why are you out here taking her pictures then? Like, go relax and and do you. Like, if that just tells you, like, women are fucking strong. Yes. Even when there isn't formula and there aren't tampons. (laughs) Oh, geez. So we'll do probably a little smash cake. Um... My sister-in-law is flying in that day, and I have not seen her in a couple years. She's getting married. Oh. She's a Patreon, too. So, hi, Christy. Hi, Christy. So, we're just going to we're gonna have some fun. And then, um, like, a week after that, Lily's coming to fly in. Oh, hell yes. So. Man, I'm out of the loop. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a busy next couple weeks of just me giving... Everybody I know, no personal space. (laughs) (laughs) People don't want personal space from you. No, they don't. No. Maybe sometimes. Maybe not. In my head, they, they, they they don't want personal space. Speaking of personal space, there's a couple people who don't give it as well. Probably not in the best way. Do you want to get into our bracket? It's really good. Okay, so once again, we have a beautiful matchup from you. Yes. As always, I'm very impressed. We're going to the Video Music Awards. Two different VMA scandals. So we're going to start with um, Taylor Swift and Kanye West, the notorious 2009 VMA debacle. And let's see. So as always with these, I have pulled up 
a brief explainer for myself. I know this one pretty well, but you know, I, I like to pull something up for a little bit of context in case there's anything that I miss or always is. Um, so I'm just going to skim that and fill you in. So Kanye West shows up at the 2009 VMAs holding a bottle of Hennessy. He is drinking it throughout the night. It is Taylor Swift's first kind of debut here. Apparently she was not overly super duper well known at this point because she was more country i'm kind of like there was a point that taylor swift wasn't that well known like i when know because this is the you belong with me era and i'm like was she really not but like i listened to country then so i guess maybe if you didn't and you know you wouldn't have the awareness um but apparently you know every article that i have found says that she was really like not that was kind of she was just really breaking into the pop culture um, pop music thing. She was nominated for best video by a female artist. However, there was also the much bigger deal category of just video of the year. Taylor was not nominated for that. Um, but in the female artist one, her and Beyonce for single ladies were both nominated. In the big kahuna here, video of the year, only Beyonce was nominated. So, First, um, first they did the smaller one for best video by a female artist and Taylor Swift won. And she comes up on stage, you know, in her silver dress with her hair curled, like looking very, very pretty, very innocent. And then she says, thank you so much. I always dreamed about what it would be like to win one of these someday, but I never thought it would actually happen. I sing country music. So thank you so much for giving me the chance to win a VMA award. I... And that's when Kanye cuts in. He jumps up on stage, takes the mic out of her hand and says, yo, Taylor, I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. (laughs) Beyonce looks mortified in the audience. Half the crowd is booing. Half the crowd is clapping. It's a whole ass mess. MTV cuts out, goes to a pre-recorded segment. Her face. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It, it was rough. So I guess backstage, Taylor Swift is crying. Beyonce is also crying. A producer told Beyonce, you know, you'll probably be going on stage soon, which ironically, you know, Connie's having this whole fit about the video by a female artist when they hadn't even done the video of the year award yet. And, you know, Beyonce still had every chance in the world of winning that. So it was yeah. a, a bit silly. Hey, Kanye, let MTV finish. <laughs> right damn that's good yeah (laughs) that's really good backstage they're both crying the producer tells beyonce that maybe she should acknowledge taylor if she finds herself on stage soon wink wink so taylor did a performance i guess her voice was like real shaky in the last verse and then she wanted to leave but the producer convinced them to stay According to the producer he had to beg um beyonce did indeed win video of the year for single ladies and she invited Taylor on stage and she said, I'd like to give Taylor her moment, which is very classy of her. Well, then Kanye posts this weird fucking public apology, which is, you know, a bit unhinged. And he says he's so sorry to Taylor Swift and all her friends and her mom. But then he kind of defends it. And I don't know. It, it's back and forth. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's the gist of that. You know, there are obviously a lot of reactions and uh president obama said the young lady seemed like a perfectly nice person but kanye was a jackass even donald trump called out kanye in a bad way 
And it was just a whole ass mess. And then, you know, later she did a song called Innocent that was, you know, definitely about Kanye. And it was like this whole forgiveness song. Some people thought it was really nice. Some people thought it was really condescending and preachy. Uh, then Kanye did a song a few years later called Famous. And then in the video, there was like a nude figure. Yep. yep. How I don't know how you would describe it, like a, a wax, a wax figure. Yeah, I don't know if it was in fact wax, but I mean it was. It look know, like, it looks like a wax figure. Yeah, it looks like a wax figure of um, some celebrities, including Taylor Swift. And as far as anybody knows, it, she didn't give her permission for that. And that was gross. And there was a lyric in that song that said, "I still feel like me and Taylor might have sex because I made that bitch famous." Mm-hmm. Um. So yuck. <laughs> Yeah. Super yuck. Then we have. Is, do you feel like there's anything I've left out of that? that was no, major? that's perfect. Okay. So then we've got Nicki Minaj versus Miley Cyrus in 2015, also the VMAs. Okay. So this actually also indirectly involved Taylor Swift. Um, I didn't really follow this one at the time. Basically, Nicki Minaj and Taylor Swift had had some kind of conflict. Um, I believe Taylor apologized. I think it was okay. But then there was an interview with oh gosh was it rolling stone no new york times there was an interview with new york times and um, miley cyrus had basically said that she assumed Nicki minaj was not being very nice in her dealings with taylor swift because she's basically not very nice it said what i read sounded very Nicki minaj which if you know Nicki minaj is not too kind it's not very polite she said that minaj was basically it was a, a race related criticism and uh Miley said, I know that you can make it seem like, oh, I just don't understand because I'm a white pop star. I know the statistics. I know what's going on in the world. But to be honest, I don't think MTV did that on purpose. Well, okay. First of all, don't, don't as a white woman say, I know the statistics. Like, stop. No. Yeah. It's, you're, you're wrong. I'm sorry. (laughs) So here we are at the VMAs 2015 and Nicki Minaj accepts her award for Anaconda. And then she turns to Miley Cyrus and says, and now back to this bitch who had a lot to say about me the other day in the press, Miley, what's good. And (laughs) yeah, Miley pretty much responded saying that uh, we're all in this industry. We all do, we all do interviews and we all know how they manipulate things and basically, you know, deflecting responsibility. So ultimately, after that, so Nikki later gave an interview to the New York Times magazine about it. And she said, the fact that you feel upset about me speaking on something that affects black women makes me feel like you have some big balls. You're in videos with black men and you're bringing out black women on your stages, but you don't want to know how black women feel about something that's so important. Come on, you can't want the good without the bad. If you want to enjoy our culture and our lifestyle, bond with us, dance with us, have fun with us, twerk with us, rap with us, then you should also want to know what affects us, what is bothering us, and what we feel is unfair to us. You shouldn't not want to know that. Yep. Yep. And I feel like for this one, I'm going to have to go with the first one because pettiness is the point. And I don't think that the second one was even really petty. I think that Nicki Minaj had a legitimate ass grievance and I mean, chose a dramatic moment to express it, I guess. But it would be hard for me to truly call after hearing her, you know, response to it toward Miley. It would be hard for me to really call that petty. It's not. It's really not. I mean, Kanye was just fucking being Kanye, which is (laughs) petty at all times. So there we go. But it, it is hard for me to call this petty. I mean, in both cases, it is a black artist doing something supposedly or not supposedly depending to a white artist. And But I feel like there is 
the narrative is very different and Kanye is being petty and Nicki Minaj is, I mean, maybe surface petty, but there's something much deeper underneath it. Exactly. All right. So Kanye and Taylor Swift move on. All right. Do you want to get into it? Oh, I don't know, Brianne. Yeah, I it's, don't know. I will tell you that although I want to treat every episode and every story with the utmost respect and the gravity that it deserves, and I feel like we don't get a whole lot of pushback about the whole comedy disaster podcast thing, and I appreciate that. I feel like people get it, but you know, I still have to be mindful of wanting to treat everything with the gravity that it deserves. But at the same time, you know, if you let every, if you let yourself feel it with every story, we wouldn't be able to do this. Right. You know, you can't get super, super emotionally affected by every story or you would need therapy to cope with your podcast. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, we don't make enough money for that. So... I, I'm really good at compartmentalizing in general and also with this. And I will say that there have been probably four give or take episodes that like really, really just got under my skin emotionally. Um, Value Jet, I believe was one. There, it was definitely a plane crash. I think it was Value Jet. Um, for whatever reason, the more tornado really fucked me up. I think it was because there were a lot of details about kids. Yeah. Um, and this is definitely one that I just like, I had to do some self-triage on managing managing the research for this one emotionally but uh there there was originally some stuff in this that i was going to include in a lgbtq heroes compilation and then i decided you know what um this should be its own episode i don't want to 1000 percent should be its own episode i don't want to cram any part of this into a smaller story. And um, I have a really close friend who lost a friend in this. And we have talked about that a little bit. And, uh, you know, I don't know, in the course of those conversations, and just doing some research and thinking about things, I just thought, you know, I was gonna do another hero compilation for the second, um, my second Pride Month episode, but I decided to cover Pulse instead. So it's a doozy. It's a doozy. It's rough. Um, For whatever reason, there are a lot of echoes for me in my very first episode, the uh, stage collapse. I don't know. There are just a lot of things that seem to kind of take me back to that. And, uh, you know, here we are. We just closed out two years doing this. That was my first episode. It's Pride Month. And I don't know. This feels personal. So... Uh, 1912 South Orange Avenue in Orlando, Florida, stood without any major incidents for decades. First, it operated as a pizza joint called Lorenzo's, and then a bar called Dante's, and then in 2003, it stood empty, waiting for its next reinvention. That would come in the form of a woman named Barbara and her business associate, Ron. Barbara's brother, John, had died in the AIDS epidemic in the early 90s, and she saw both a business opportunity in this property and also an opportunity to honor her brother. She envisioned a gay nightclub, yes, but more than just that. She also envisioned somewhere that would mean something and stay engaged with the community and with the things that her brother cared about, things like HIV prevention and immigration. John's coming out had completely changed the culture of their strict Italian family, and she felt like he could continue to make a difference if she kind of took some of his soul and poured it into this business. Mm. 
She felt so strongly about it that she even factored this in when she chose a name. She chose the name Pulse so that John's pulse would continue after his death in the form of this gathering place. That's so fucking cool. I know. And Pulse succeeded on both fronts. Uh, Activism stayed at the forefront of its activities. They had regular educational events, but it did also just thrive as a nightclub. Orlando Weekly wrote that Pulse included, quote, three glitzy, throbbing rooms of club boys, twinks, and twinks at heart. Every night has something different in store, but Pulse is known to have some pretty impressive drag shows, and the bar's dancers are usually gorgeous. You do have to wonder about, like, the one dancer that made them go ahead and throw in that usually, though, don't you? Oh! (laughs) Like, what? <laughs> that's definitely shady isn't it i feel like there's a story there um so pulse had an all-white room with rainbow lights which sounds just cool as shit magical right and the decor was considered very innovative and i just want to have a little lgbtq culture sidebar here which is something that i feel like a lot of people would know but maybe not, which is that bars and clubs and gay culture mean something more. Yes. The gay community has very few, in most places, um, gathering places. They have very few physical spaces to have community. And it, it can be a problem, especially if you're sober, especially if you are turning 21 and Maybe you've had some kind of youth situation and now all there is is bars. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember this was a whole thing when I was a young warthog um, slash a young lesbian. And I went to a gay youth group all the time. Like I, I lived there. I mean, I was there four or five days a week. I got, you know, I ate my meals there. I did my recreation there. I did my socializing and fucking womanizing there. (laughs) That, that was it. That's, that is where I was. And you aged out when you turned 21. And, you know, there were always these huge concerns and initiatives with the leadership to figure out some kind of space that's not a bar or club for people to continue to see each other because it's not necessarily an option at people's houses. And, you know, at least for me at the time, it was the early 2000s in a Midwestern state. So you've got to be a little bit careful in public. I mean, I've never really gotten a whole lot of public homophobia, but, you know, it's it's different. Right. And that, you know, it ends up being a very important gathering place in a way that I don't think straight culture thinks of bars as being, you know, it stands in for community centers, support groups, churches to a certain extent. It's, it is a level of community that I don't think people necessarily understand. No. And I think even, I mean, that's evident when you see just straight community going into a gay bar acting the way they do. Yes. Usually. Absolutely. Usually invading their space. And it can um, be very disrespectful. Yes. Taking it for their own. Yeah. Yes, it absolutely can. Um, we used to have a lesbian bar in Indianapolis. I mean, I'm not going to say it was a good bar, but like it was a whole ass bar and it wasn't even mixed. It was just a lesbian bar. Oh, I have so many fond memories of that place. <laughs> it's closed now. It was called the 10 and man, it was, it was the place. I don't think we have anything comparable now, but you know, when we talk about the, importance of a space like this and the meaning in a community i think that it is very disproportionate to what people may intuitively understand especially for certain people so 
especially for closeted people. So June 11th, 2016 should have been just like any other night on the Orlando nightclub circuit, or maybe even a little bit better. Um, June is Pride Month. And if you can stay out of the fucking discourse and comment sections and Twitter threads, June tends to have a certain energy. And Pulse was known for their themed nights, including Talent Night, Burlesque Night, and Hip Hop Night. But every Saturday was Latin Night. The night had been a success. They had dancing, performances, drinks flowing, you know, good ambiance, good lighting. The vibe was good. Last call was at 2 a.m., and the place was still pretty packed. There were over 300 patrons closing the place down and ordering their final drinks for the night. The music was going strong with a loud reggae song on the speakers, but something evil was on its way to Pulse. And it certainly wasn't, you know, drunk men dancing. Right. <laughs> it was Omar Mateen pulling up to a business next door in a rented van, parking, and walking into Pulse with a semi-automatic rifle and a semi-automatic pistol, both purchased legally. He had driven a couple hours from his home in Florida to reach Pulse, and he was prepared. He had already placed a 911 call stating his intentions just before he went in. There was an off-duty officer named Adam working security who might have intercepted him, but Omar simply went in through a different door, immediately opening fire at 2.02 a.m. And the loose security may be a reason that Pulse was chosen, but we will get into that a little bit more later. And I do want to say, I just want to sidebar a little bit right now and say that I am not getting into Omar himself at length in this. A lot has been said about who he was and what his deal was and what he did to lead up to this. And I just don't give much of a shit about him to an extent. I'll get into it because it's very relevant to the story, but I could have done, I could have made this two parts and done a whole separate, you know, first part just about him and what, what his background was and what his deal was and what his preparations and motivations were. But I don't really want this to be about him to that extent. No. And we're pretty victim focused over here too. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I would, you know, obviously you can't really completely tell one without telling the other, but I don't want to focus on him a whole ton. So he went in, he opened fire at 2.02 a.m., and it took the bar patrons a moment to realize what was happening. Uh, Ray, the DJ, turned down the music to make sure that the sound was coming from firecrackers like he thought it was, but once it started, it didn't stop. Instead, it immediately turned into mass panic and death. The hundreds of people in the building all realized at once what was happening and surged for the exits, but Omar had already succeeded in his goals for some. People dropped where they'd been dancing, injured or dead, on the dance floor in the main room called the Jewel Box. Adam, the off-duty cop, knew his handgun didn't stand a chance. As soon as he saw what Omar had, he knew he was outgunned, so he took cover and called for backup. While he was taking cover, he watched two men try to escape from an emergency exit, and he saw Omar just shoot them, and he knew he had to at least try. So he fired at Omar and missed. Omar moved toward the back of the building, shooting indiscriminately, shooting anyone at all. Whether they were down or standing, he was even firing into bodies on the ground to make sure they were dead. Liquor bottles got shot and exploded everywhere. Um, He didn't stop at all to do anything but reload for several minutes and the building smelled like gunpowder he was just shooting and shooting and shooting i think this is um technically the first mass shooting we've covered it is it is yeah Yeah. there's these these are so hard 
Yeah. And I never, you know, it's one of those things where it's always like, well, maybe it's not the right time because there was always just a horrific one. And it's like, I don't want to seem like I'm, you know, kind of capitalizing on that or anything, but there is never a right time. No, this one is like, my eyes are already starting to well up because <laughs> yeah. uh, I just, I just had Aria when this happened Oof. and when they were breaking in with the news, I was like up breastfeeding her in the middle of the night oh, and man. thinking like, I just brought a kid into this fucking shit. Yeah. Yeah. So I, well, we, we touched on the Las Vegas massacre in one of my heroes episodes, but I think that is the closest we've come to a mass shooting. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. Part of that for me is that I, it always seems like a bad time. Part of that is just, I mean, where do you start? Which one? There's so fucking many. Yeah. I mean, this, you know? as soon as you talk about one, there's, there's another one. So yeah. welcome to America. I mean, there's, there's a million, there was another massacre in a New Orleans gay bar before this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't super read into that. So, at 2.04 a.m., the backup requested by Adam arrived because that was two minutes later, but SWAT officers had been parked right around the corner just coincidentally. Adam told them that Omar was on the back patio, and then Adam went back to trying to fire at him now with additional firepower from the other two officers. Omar retreated to a bathroom with hostages, which changed the vibe significantly. <laughs> Uh, there were 15 to 25 people in a room, a bathroom next to him, packed into a handicapped bathroom stall together, and he had five to eight with him in a separate room. So now that he was in the bathroom, officers were able to enter the building, and once they were in there, they found a waking nightmare. Just fucking horror. There were bodies everywhere. It had been a matter of minutes, like not even five minutes, I don't think, since he had started shooting. Bodies were everywhere, and like we've talked about so, so many times, injured is so completely understated so often. You know, these these are horrific injuries, so horrific it's hard to even know who's alive or dead. So as they picked their way through them, the first responders gave a horribly simple directive. If you're alive, raise your hand. Oh. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people had either someone had fallen on them and died or they had hidden underneath bodies to play dead. So, you know, there, there was, it was uncertain. One of the bouncers, Yusuf had just left the Marines a month prior where he had served in Afghanistan as a Sergeant. He was one of the people who had known from the first shot, what he was hearing and saw the writing on the wall. So he jumped into action. He saw a locked door surrounded by patrons too panicked to move and screamed at them to open the door. He told CBS News, there was only one choice. Either we all stay there and we all die, or I could take the chance. I jumped over to open that latch, and we got everyone that we can out of there. And 70 people were able to escape because of him. Wow. Yeah. Um, at 2.09 a.m., the blood-chilling message, everyone get out of Pulse and keep running, was posted by the club's Facebook page. That gives me goosebumps every time I read it. Yeah. While some of law enforcement tried to respond to the situation inside the club and give aid to the injured, another group convened outside to strategize about the new hostage situation they were now dealing with. Outside, patrons worked together to stop bleeding or carry victims to vehicles so they could be taken to the hospital. Because, I mean, the amount was overwhelming for ambulances. I'm not sure if ambulances were even necessarily there yet, but there were so many people. The situation in the bathroom was not good. And um, this is... 
This is a quote from the New York Times, which is a little bit longer than I would normally prefer for a quote to be. But I mean, I just I can't retell this and it needs to be told. Um, So it says, quote, a young man stumbled into the bathroom bleeding and groped toward the stall. Mr. Cassiano tried to pull him in underneath the partition, but there were just so many people and the young man was in such pain. Mr. Cassiano tried to reassure him, saying that maybe the gunman wouldn't find them in the bathroom. He looks me in the eye and said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die, Mr. Cassiano said. Then the gunman was in the bathroom. He laughed. I just hear one solid gunshot and you see the boy just completely, you saw the life leave him. He started shooting at the stall. Two shots pierced Mr. Cassiano. Another cut down a young woman who'd been standing next to him. People begged him to stop, to spare them, trying to assure him that they hadn't seen his face. He reached his gun over the stall wall and shot into the cluster of people. As the screaming died down, people slumped to the floor. Some were playing dead, others were not playing. When the gunman left the bathroom, Mr. Cassiano knew that it was time to go. He climbed out of the stall, stepping on bodies to make it out. He saw flashlights from police officers trying to penetrate the club and rescue people. He escaped. It was less than an hour into the three-hour siege. There's not going to be a lot of comedy in this one, is there? No. (laughs) Nope. No. Nope, nope, nope. It It is rough, and it stays rough. At 2.25 a.m., Jeff Rodriguez texted his brother Santos, who was at his house playing video games. He said, I've been shot at the club, dying, I love you. Then, dead bodies on top of me, tell everyone I love them. Then, mommy, poppy, Mary. Then, love you. Santos thought he was kidding, and he said, LMAO, yeah, you'd be taking pictures of it and posting it and sending it to people. Jeff replied, not a joke, Santi. And that's when Santos Googled it and saw what had happened and the tone changed. Yeah. He texted back, I love you, Jeff. I'm so sorry. I thought you were joking and I told myself to check Google and it's true. I'm so sorry. I love you. Stay safe. Put pressure on the wound. Hold it tight if you can. Tighten it with a t-shirt. Did the bullet go in and out? And after that, Santos alerted his parents and his wife and he drove 100 miles per hour to Orlando in the dark. But one bit of good news, Jeff did survive. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, one young man named Zachary was there and this is, it doesn't really fit into the linear narrative so much. I just wanted to kind of make a note of this because I kept thinking throughout, I was like, what about the people who were closeted? Right. Aren't now, (laughs) you know, that's, that's rough, whether they were injured or died, you know, what, what a thing. So I just kind of wanted to make a note of this. Um, there's one man named Zachary who was there who was 19 and not out to his family. And he later said, my thoughts were, this is it. This is how I go. This is where I die. And nobody knows. Nobody knows where I am. My friends and my family don't even know where I'm at. My family and friends don't even know I am gay. And they would see my face on the news the next morning. Now, that kid had a happy ending. Um, obviously, you know, if he's saying that he did survive, but also um, he, in the course of telling his parents what he had survived, came out in that conversation and that went well for him and he was well supported. But Good. Man, there had to be so many stories like that. Right. And those are the ones you're not going to hear about. And I mean, you know, especially after the last episode, you shouldn't hear about them. But I'm sure there was a lot of that. I mean, I don't know if I should say this, but I mean, I know that this event drew a mainly Latino crowd. And I know that in Latino culture, there can be some problems with homophobia. You know, it's not it's not super well accepted by the older generation. So I feel like there could have been probably a lot of that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's problematic to say that. A lot of articles kind of acknowledged it. And I think that most people 
in the community would know that that is a thing. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It is what it is. Certainly, certainly, certainly don't want to paint that with too broad of a brush. You know, I know there are tons and tons and tons of families who are very accepting, but it, it can be a problem overall. So at 2.35 a.m., Omar called 911 and said, I want to let you know I'm in Orlando and I did the shootings. And he pledged allegiance to ISIS, which, um, for the record, it doesn't seem like this was an ISIS-directed thing. No. Um, it seems like ISIS ultimately was like, sure, fuck yeah, if you want to claim us, we'll claim you. And uh, accepted responsibility for it, because that's their whole deal. But it doesn't seem like this came from them at all. At 2.46 a.m., a patron named Eddie texted his mom in bathroom, then he has us, then call the police and then call them mommy, and then I'm going to die. Ugh, call them mommy. Yeah. Yeah. This episode fucking Like, it up. doesn't matter how old you are. No, no. It doesn't he, fucking matter. He didn't make it. Um, at 2.48 a.m., Omar talked to the police on the phone and told them that he had enough explosives in his car to blow up city blocks. And um, at some point, police sent in a robot with two-way radio that opened up communication with Omar and the hostages. And they found that they didn't really have a whole lot of negotiating power here because Omar didn't really want anything. He right. just kind of wanted to do what he was doing. So there wasn't a lot they could say. Um, at 3.58 a.m., police told residents to stay away from the area. Uh, right around that time, shortly after, the medical examiner gets a call that there are 11 or 12 casualties in the nightclub. And then that number is changed to 20 and then 30. Um, and by the end of it all, it would go much higher than that. Um, at this point, the police were two hours into assessing the situation. And this is a little dicey. And it's a little dicey also to talk about because I don't ever, you know, I'm critical of the police for sure. I, you know, that's a whole, that's a whole fucking discourse that is not really, this episode's not the place for it, but I will say that at the very least, I am certainly critical of the police, but at the same time, I do acknowledge that I'm not the one having to try to navigate a fucking hostage situation here. You know, also that is their job. Like you would think you would think you would think Um, two hours seems like a while. Ultimately, three hours seems like a while, but I don't know. You know, I'm not the one in those shoes, and that does come up a little bit later. We'll get to that. Um, At 4.21 a.m., police removed an air conditioning unit, and they freed some people from inside the club that way. Um, And they learned that Omar had told them that he was going to put bomb vests on four of them in the next 15 minutes. I don't actually think he had bomb vests in there, but I don't know. It's, It's not super clear. At 4.29 a.m., Omar texted his wife, I love you, babe, which he was an abusive piece of shit. Just, I mean, obviously he's not a good dude, but um, he'd been married twice. We'll get into his marriage a little bit later, but he'd been married twice and apparently he was abusive to both of them. So, you know, there's that. Um, Shortly after that, things escalated. According to the LA Times, the police chief says that a little before five, quote, that talk became a crisis for us. Which, I don't know how I feel about that, because on one hand, I mean, escalation is escalation. You could escalate from horrifying to even more horrifying. Right, But, right. I mean, was it not a crisis already? It Yes, exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like a bit of a crisis, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that because it, it does seem like there was an escalation. Um, at 5 a.m., the decision was made that they would try to storm pulse using explosives to blow a hole in the bathroom wall from the outside. The police chief said there was a timeline given and we believed there was an imminent loss of life. They also plowed an armored vehicle called a Bearcat into the outside of the bathroom wall, which is when Omar showed himself and began firing at the SWAT team. Eleven of them returned fire and advanced on Omar and um, hit him, I want to say, eight times and killed him. When he fell, there was some type of battery pack near him, and there was concern that it may be an explosive device. They brought in a robot to investigate. Um, I don't think it ultimately was. This took some time, so there was a pretty good lag before they could fully move through the club, uh, searching for bodies or survivors. So as they do, you know, they're not they're not finding much good. Uh, right. One of the survivors was found on the bathroom floor, frozen in terror and playing dead to avoid being shot. And an officer with a military background found him and said, soldier, soldier, push yourself up. Just kind of reverting to his training. Um, other officers had to drag injured people across the floor that was covered in broken glass. And mm. um, nearby fast food restaurants received them. Uh, there was mention of Wendy's that people were taken to. And there were pools of blood and bloody drag marks on the sidewalks days after the shooting. Uh, the shooting was, at the time, the deadliest mass shooting in American history. I know that at the very least, Las Vegas has exceeded that since then. I would bet probably more than that, but I'm not sure. 39 people died inside the building. 13 of them were in various bathrooms. Three were on stage. One in the lobby, one on the patio, 20 on the dance floor. And um, then nine died in ambulances or hospitals. Uh, two were dead in the street in front of the building. So 49 total. And then Fuck. Omar. Um, of the more than 300 people in the building when the shooting started, one third were either killed or injured. Uh, insult was piled on top of injury, rather literally, when the call went out for blood donations to replenish what had been on the floors of Pulse instead. And, of course, gay men were prohibited from helping their own in this way. It's so fucking insane to me. It's insanity. Yep. Yep. It's insanity. It had been a few months since the FDA had changed the rules so that men who have sex with men could donate, but it only applied if the sex hadn't happened within the last year. Um, since then, it has been changed to the last three months, which is... Still, fuck. I mean, I, in my opinion, it's a little problematic because it... it <sighs> you know, everything I say about why it's problematic might be problematic, but it, it, men... <laughs> men like you don't really you know say you're a straight woman and you have sex with men you don't necessarily know if they're having sex with men no and i mean obviously there are whole other methods of transmission but you know if we're calling it what it is and acknowledging that men who have sex with men are at the greatest risk you still don't know where they are like the level of contact tracing is not good enough to make this relevant. It's it's silly. And I mean, someone correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe it's not silly. Maybe there is more of a point to this than I think there is, but I I struggle. Well, I think it's fucking silly. <sighs> I don't care for it. Um, I mean, I haven't necessarily done a whole entire deep dive into both sides of it, but it it feels a little and, and I get it. I mean, I get Archaic? it. Archaic? 
It feels archaic, and I understand that theoretically, you know, infection control is the point, and it can come off um, as homophobic when you're dealing with a community that has the greatest risk. I, I get it, sort of. But it, I just feel like the contact tracing is not good enough for it to matter like like that. I don't know. I don't know. That's another topic for another day. Maybe someday we'll do a mini-sode and do a deep dive into that. So, with so many groups in play, there were obvious and immediate questions about what had motivated Omar. Now, (laughs) this is fucking tricky. Here's the thing. In the days after the attack, a multitude of people, a multitude, came forward claiming that Omar was active on Grindr and Jacked. Yeah. If you don't know, are both gay dating. I remember that. Dating slash sex apps. Um, one was a former classmate. One was a man named Miguel who claimed that he had met up with Omar 20 plus times. And he said that in the time leading up to the attack, Omar had slept with a man who turned out to be HIV positive. And in his version of the story, Omar took an HIV test, which was negative, but it can take months to be positive on a test. And according to Miguel, he was freaking the fuck out and he had an axe to grind with Latino men. According to Miguel, uh, Omar's marriage was known to be just a front. Apparently, he had also been known to be a regular at Pulse, Hmm. which there is some serious information on both sides of that. Uh, Law enforcement was super evasive about all of these allegations, but multiple regulars at Pulse were interviewed, and they all said that he was there all the time vacillating between well i mean i don't mean every regular but i mean the ones interviewed on this said that he was there all the time do you think Um, it's a situation not to like muddy the waters or anything they're very fucking muddy already where where you know these the shootings they get political fast Mm -hmm. and it's so much easier or um not easier is the word but um What's the word I'm looking for? I feel like useful with disclaimers might be what you're looking for. Yeah. To blame it on a terrorist. Yeah. I feel like there were a whole lot of groups with a whole lot of their own motivations and interests who saw a lot of different potential narratives from this. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of those things where it's hard to say, well, because of this guy's affiliation, he's a good guy or a bad guy or something. Like, think back to the last episode and the fucking gay advocacy groups inadvertently outing people. So I do think that everybody in this saw a narrative. And I've really, really tried to Occam's razor these stories and have my own opinion. So we're going to unpack that just a little bit. But I will say there, I, I don't think there is a clear answer. I don't think we're ever going to have a clear answer. So some of these people said that he was there quite a bit and that he would vacillate between drinking quietly and alone and getting drunk and combative. And generally speaking, I'm inclined to listen to the community on that. Right. During the investigation, Omar's father said that Omar shouldn't have done what he did because he didn't need to punish gay people. God would take care of that. So Omar should have just chilled. Uh His father did also say, I don't approve of what he did. What he did was completely an act of terrorism. Which is interesting. The FBI was a little bit fucking weird about the whole thing. And most of the articles from this particular time period strike kind of a weird tone where they'll have a headline like 
FBI says there's no evidence that the pole shooter was gay, but then the content of the article is literally nothing but circumstantial evidence that he was. Right. So it's it, it seems like kind of a wink-wink, the FBI says this, but, but thing. But one version of the story, which very well may be true, is that he didn't decide on Pulse until the last second. He'd tried other bars, but found them to have too much security. Some articles and sources even say he didn't even know it was a gay bar, which is sus for a million reasons, including the fact that when his wife eventually went to trial, she was accused of having helped him case the club in advance. Like, did he case it or not? Yeah. If he did, like, at all, he would have known it was a fucking gay bar. He had been married once before, and his first wife said she didn't know for sure, but she suspected he was gay. But his current wife apparently didn't think so, and the FBI supposedly found proof that he was having affairs with women, which there's no fucking law saying he can't have affairs with both. Right. I question the news coverage of this a lot. Immediately after the shooting, the governor of Florida and the attorney general had made it clear that they didn't want the narrative to center on gays or guns, quote, and they would just be focusing on this as a universal attack on Americans. And I guess, (laughs) yeah. I guess my feeling is, like, am I going to trust Rick Scott or my own community on this? Right. You're going to be inclusive now? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, there, there is a lot of coverage on both sides. There's a lot of coverage saying, you know, we have all these sources, multiple unrelated sources, all saying the same thing. He was very active on these particular couple of apps, people at the bar who all said they knew him, multiple people with specific stories about their history with him, which all seem to track with each other. Then on the other hand, you know, as a counterpoint to that, the one thing that does kind of, for me, call that whole, you know, thing into question is his Google search history, which, I mean, there's no saying the man wasn't playing 3D chess and doing this with his Google search history on purpose so his legacy wouldn't go down as being a gay man. I don't know. But um, according to NBC News, quote, on the night of June 11th, 2016, Omar Mateen Googled and visited Disney Springs, a popular Orlando outdoor shopping and recreation center. Then just after midnight, he Googled Disney World and his cell phone placed him near the towers around Epcot, another Disney owned theme park, according to the Orlando Sentinel. But it wasn't until he was near Epcot that Mateen Googled downtown Orlando nightclubs, which delivered Eve Orlando and Pulse as top results. Mateen then drove to Eve, where he stayed for six minutes before driving away. Eve Orlando in a busy downtown nightclub district is in an area with a heavy police presence, Swift said. Around 1 a.m. on June 12th, the night of the attack, Mateen performed one final Google search for downtown Orlando nightclubs and began to drive to Pulse. He hesitated, turned back toward Eve, and then turned around again and headed back to Pulse. Finally, around 2 a.m., Mateen fired the first shots in the Pulse nightclub, a motion filed by the defense said. There was no cellular evidence that he had ever been there before that night. So, I mean, there's that, you know, yeah. and that's that's fairly compelling, honestly. That is, you know, that really paints a picture of him just kind of selecting something at random, driving around, scouting out the security and just ending up there. But at the same time, you know, there are a lot of people with pretty much the same story. And... Ultimately, I don't think we're ever going to know for sure if the pulse shooting was a hate crime or not. Because, I mean, if it was chosen at random, you know, it certainly disproportionately impacts the gay community, but it's not necessarily a hate crime. Right. Um, terrorism, sure, not necessarily a hate crime. Um, but in terms of remembering the people lost, I don't really think it matters. The LGBTQ community is different. You know, a lot of the people in the community know exactly what it is to be rejected or shunned by our families. And we tend to take our 
chosen family very, very, very fucking seriously. We belong to each other in a very real way. And 49 of our people and our allies died there. So it is our job to remember them and tell their stories. It doesn't fucking matter what this piece of shit's motivation was. Right. Exactly. I mean, they were our people and they're gone. And that's that. So this kind of is a circle back to episode one for me also, which is um, with that one, we did a pretty big chunk of time at the end, just kind of listing off victims. Yeah. And uh, saying what we could about them. And because I believe really strongly that in this community, we belong to each other in a very important, very fucking powerful way. I want to name these people. So bear with me because that is what I'm going to do. Akira was the youngest victim at 18 years old. Jason was a protective big brother. Louis was studying theater. Allie sent a message to his partner after the shooting started that said, I swear I love you. Corey was shot in the parking lot on his way back to his car. Juan was a homebody who had gone out for a night with his partner. Louis operated the Harry Potter ride at Universal. There are quite a few with that name, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, Peter worked for UPS. Stanley was a pharmacy tech. Christopher made everyone around him feel important. Jonathan was an assistant producer on a TV singing competition. Yilmarie had good energy, two kids, and a race car driver husband. Amanda had her whole life planned out. Anthony was a drag performer. Enrique was studying social work. Geraldo was in town to see Selena Gomez. Gilberto died with his best friend. Juan had planned to go into business with his niece doing hair and makeup. Leroy loved Beyonce. Tevin was the one his family went to for advice. Mercedes was studying literature. Oscar had just bought a house. Frankie was a gymnastics coach. Gene had just bought a house, which his mom lived in after his death. Angel was an ophthalmic technician. Antonio was an army veteran who was two months away from a doctorate degree. Daryl was a hard worker with a master's in HR. Eddie was always bursting with energy. Miguel and his wife were a team when it came to raising their one, two, and 15-year-old kids. Gerald worked at Disneyland. Joel loved tacos. Simon never forgot to bring a cake to work for his co-workers' birthdays. Christopher loved Star Wars. Dee Dee had a three-year-old son. Martin loved creating Halloween costumes. Rocky was a supervisor at one of the main blood collection places that would jump into action after the shooting. Shane was a singer who'd finished performing at another venue just before coming to Pulse. Edward was a travel agent known as Top Hat Eddie. Gene and his partner were opposites who balanced each other out and died together. Xavier was a performer. Eric was two weeks away from his first wedding anniversary with his husband. Juan worked at a hair salon with his mother and husband. Kimberly was a bouncer who did drag under the stage name Daddy K. Louis was a safe haven for his friends. Louis died with his partner. Javier had a contagious smile. Paul saw the potential in everyone. Brenda had 11 children. And Frankie, the oldest victim at 50 years old, designed window displays for Forever 21. Mm, What a huge fucking loss on so many levels. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, And as I briefly touched on earlier, ultimately, Omar's wife went to trial for her possible involvement in the shooting. Um, 
The situation was widely seen as kind of Islamophobic and something where it wouldn't have happened that way if the shooter and his wife had been white. She was acquitted, but the jury foreman said anonymously, she may not have known what day or what location, but she knew. However, we were not tasked with deciding if she was aware of a potential attack. The jury seemed uncomfortable with her not guilty verdict, but the FBI had fucked up their interrogation so thoroughly, including a 12-hour interview they did without an attorney, that they basically had no choice. Yeah, I followed this one really closely. It was a whole mess. Like, I probably honestly could have done a whole section, like a whole, you know, I probably could have split this into three or four parts and done a whole one just on her trial and, you know, potential involvement and everything, but I just didn't want to zero in on them too much. I don't know that I personally have an opinion. I don't know why the jury foreman, knowing everything that he knows, would go so far out of his way to say so publicly that he felt very strongly that she knew something. Mm -hmm. Um, So that that says something to me. But it also does sound like the FBI super fucking dropped the ball. There was a lot of vague shit about whether the police messed up. A lot of people felt like they took way too long assessing. um, And they came off very defensive in a lot of sources about whether anyone was shot during that time and whether anyone was hit by their bullets. This seems like a running theme with these things. We just went through this. Yeah. Which I think they officially say no to both, but it's kind of one of those things where it's like, I don't know that anyone was asking necessarily i mean i'm sure somebody was but it just kind of seems like they're getting out ahead of that and maybe that's just because i don't know maybe they feel getting out ahead of it or maybe it's because they can sue me i don't give a fuck yeah (laughs) well they got sued in 2018 and the plaintiff's attorney said quote instead of doing their job they worried about themselves they stayed outside and they worried only about their own safety knowing that people were literally getting mowed down by the dozens just a few feet away Mm-hmm. The case was dismissed, and apparently also there was some shit where they detained victims for, like, so long that it was basically considered I- illegally arresting them. Like, every victim who wasn't injured who left apparently got detained without bathrooms or drinks or anything for, like, 12 hours. Wow. Yeah. And I did not I, know that. Yeah, I I came into that information at the very end of researching. Here's some more trauma um, after your trauma. Right? And, I mean, I I get that they would need to interview those people, but, like, you really can't do that. No, not you at really, all. You really super can't do that. So that is a little – that's something. And, yeah, the case got dismissed. And um, also in kind of a weird tie into my last episode, because we talked about the Melissa Etheridge song, Tuesday Morning, um, she did a beautiful song called Pulse about this tragedy. So that's kind of a weird tie-in. And that is Pulse. Wow. Good job. Thank you. I hope I did it justice. Yeah. I love that you didn't focus on him. Nah, fuck him. Fuck him. He doesn't deserve it. He's gotten enough coverage. That was that was that was um that, that was fucking rough. That's that was one of the hardest ones. Yeah, I think I've... it was. It was definitely one of the hardest um, top five hardest on research for sure. Um, for whatever fucking reason, I think that more tornado one messed me up more than anyone ever has. But uh, yeah, this was a super fucking tough one. Well, thanks for putting yourself out there to do it for us. <sighs> Wow. So 
I think we need some disaster relief. Fuck yeah, we need some disaster relief. <laughs> you want to go first or you want me to? Um, I'll go first. So mine today is Amy. White chicken Amy. <laughs> White chicken, what'd she do? So a while back in the Horrible Ghouls group, she posted a picture of Ready Kilowatt. Did you see that? That she got a bunch of stickers. The electricity will kill you stickers. I don't think I did. Ah. And I was like, oh my gosh, that reminds me of like Louis the Lightning Bug. And it's I I need those stickers. Like I want the stickers. And she fucking sent me some. Oh. And Amy, this I am publicly thanking you right now. I love my stickers so much. <laughs> I want to like I want to put some on my laptop. I think I want to do I don't know. I've been really addicted to those little resin videos that people do on Tumblr's. Maybe I could get someone to like put resin over top of stickers for me. Can you do that on a I Tumblr? Mean, I, don't, I don't see why not. I don't the fuck do I know that I'm talking like it has to be food safe right I'd love to have a tumbler with like all my little disaster stickers on there that aren't gonna wash off and I can just keep it forever that sounds cool as shit somebody is gonna know something about this I feel like we have a very resiny community (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I mean by that but I feel like you do yes that's what I want to do I think I want to make a tumbler with like some of our stickers um the koala head in the box stickers, some kilowatt stickers. I love stickers. I love fucking stickers. So yeah, Amy, you're my disaster relief. I love I love them so much and you picked that out the cutest so cool. ones. That's such a good one. What's yours? Okay, so mine on the weird dumb yum scale is gonna fall squarely under weird. <laughs> um, uh, I'm gonna make my disaster relief fucking haunted buildings this week. Um, and you know why (laughs) yes i do yes i have um, a friend who recently bought a big old haunted medical building that's been abandoned for a very long time and um due to a long weird confluence of circumstances i ended up having the opportunity to spend the night in the haunted building the other night. Which is so out of your comfort zone i know i'm really out of my comfort zone lately (laughs) Um, but it was very cool. It was one of the fucking weirdest nights of my life, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was so much to discover. We were just walking around, like, there, the medical license, um, for the doctor, one of the doctors who worked there is just stuck to the wall in one of the closets and then in another closet. I don't know if you noticed in the picture I sent you, there's like a piece of paper, index card maybe that's partially, like, it was, adhesed to the ceiling on the inside of a closet somehow yeah and it's partially ripped off and all you can make out is a handwritten is bad is bad is bad what the fuck is bad (laughs) i'll tell you what you need to do you need to go back but take a ouija board and then you'll have all your answers well uh, first of all i would never never um, don't say never because i don't know i'm saying fucking never I don't give a shit. I am saying a hard never to that. But uh, one of my good friends has a ghost talker app that has given some weird shit, including the word surgeon in those rooms. Oh. Yeah. It, it 
tells you words. And I mean, some of it, I feel like, is just kind of what you would expect from, you know, a ghost talker app, whether it's legit or not. You know, it's leave and death and accident and everything. Which, What's the difference you know, between a ghost talker app and a Ouija board? I feel like they're you know, both still opening honestly, some shit. That's fair. <laughs> Let me think about that. You may have a point there. I definitely have a point. I was not involved in the decision to involve this fucking app, but I will say that the inclusion of the word surgeon is a little alarming. (laughs) So, and I I have been on newspapers.com looking up the fucking history of this building, shit that's happened in it. There's been some bad shit that's happened in it. Oh, really? Like what? Uh, (gasps) Murder-suicide. What didn't happen in the building, but one of the doctors that worked there, him and his wife yikes yeah um i mean a lot of really horrific deaths which you'd kind of expect you know based on what kind of building it was but i don't know there's a, there's a lot to dig up um dun, dun, yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh haunted buildings i don't know it made my week interesting that's for fucking sure <laughs> and i guess interesting is my main criteria lately it seems like uh, I, I don't, know. Go to I don't know if we're going for good at this point. Just interesting. Just interesting. <laughs> Something different. Let's do some spontaneity and have some fun. Done. Check. I'm on it. Love it. So. Well, thank you for that absolutely depressing episode. <laughs> You're so welcome. Uh, we do have some <laughs> Patreons before we go. I'd love to give you a depressing episode and then follow it up with a murder-suicide reference in yes. my disaster relief. <laughs> That's my brand. Jesus. So we have three Patreons today. So you guys are going to, we're going to put you guys together. You can all sit at the table together. First we have, it's either Andrea Downs, but I also have a friend that spells this way and it's Andrea. Mm. Um, We have Anna Ostergaard and James Morin. So you guys are oh, all nice. buddies this week. Go donate blood, go donate food. Go, Go donate, donate a kidney. kidney. And donate a lung, even. Can you do that? I don't think you can do that. I think you can. No. You can you altruistically can. donate a lung, really? No, I don't think you can, actually. Okay. Well, I, I mean, mean guys, start a trend. It's fine. Start a trend. Go to a haunted house together. Yes. And donate your lungs there? Well, yeah, is, if it turns out sideways. Thing? I'm Googling this. Can you <laughs> Might not be altruistic at that point. <laughs> a long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's fine. You'll be fine. You won't be fine, but somebody else will be. Technically, oh, listen here. Technically, you can't donate an entire lung. Some transplant centers do living donor lung transplants, where the lower lobes of your lung, your right lung has three lobes and the left has two. So for two donors, um, they are transplanted. Oh, okay. Yeah, so go donate a lobe too while you're while you're there. Just a lobe in the haunted house. That is that is actually the best transplant center for that is a haunted house. Yep, you're gonna be okay. Bring ice. You're not gonna be okay, but you know, <laughs> it, it's fine. You had a good run. All right. Well, until next time, sweet dreams until or no dreams. Sweet dreams or no dreams. Hey, Horrible Ghouls. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to share your personal MarkSafe moment, you can send it to us at MarkSafePodcast at gmail.com. Please give our podcast a rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your buddies about us too. That goes a long way. If you want to further elevate your support, check out our MarkSafe Patreon page, where we have shoutouts, goodies, and some bonus content in the works. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again, and as always, 
stay safe.